261 of Breaking Kiffy with Baldrin and or Barry, as the case uh, sometimes is. Uh, on this particular episode, we're past that five-year anniversary. What? Hey, yeah, I know it's shocking. Uh, so our match of the week this week, two all-time legends from June of 1988 in Hiroshima, or as Barry calls it, Hiroshima. I don't know which. It's one of those two. Uh, on this show, amongst everything else, Lou going to be joining us for a little CAC review. Uh, not only the events that happen in Vegas, Barry, little food review coming from the Plaza Hotel in Vegas. What? And here's a surprise, not necessarily positive. We're going to have a movie review. This one has been lingering for a while. Uh, the two people that reviewed the film for us, we said Dennis Brown and Kevin Dignam. Uh, we certainly pray that the reviews have been on hold waiting for his lordship to actually watch our movie of the week. Apparently he's had other things going on. What that could be, I don't know. Uh, besides everything else, we're going to be, uh, talking a little AEW in that disaster of a segment from last week involving the ladies. And we're going to be joined uh, very briefly by our friend Kevin Kelly, who's going to be discussing the legacy of uh, the great Antonio Inoki we lost recently. We're going to be talking about that with Kevin uh, as he shares some memories of uh, New Japan and the Japanese wrestling scene involving uh, the great Antonio Inoki. However, before we start, Barry, I want to take a couple moments here, uh, if you don't mind, for myself. You know, last episode was probably the most difficult episode I've done probably since uh, I found out about my cancer, uh, even more, more so uh, and some of you may not understand this, but uh, probably even more painful than when I lost my father. Uh, when I discussed the loss of my beloved boy, uh, my my dog Gunny, and I can't tell you the number of people that reached out to me uh, on Facebook, sent me a text, sent me a Facebook messenger, offering their condolences uh, and their uh, if they if if they had a chance, their fond memories of of interacting with Gunny. And uh, it really did me good. Uh, I will not lie. It has been a very tough week. Um, as I posted on my own page, uh, it was just the other night that uh, we got Gunny's ashes back uh, in an urn. I got his uh, his collar, uh, his harness back with his tags uh, and uh, the people that did uh, the the cremation of Gunny. They also put in uh, a. Uh, couple locks of his hair and we have not yet decided what we're going to do with gunny's ashes right now they're on uh in a in a canister on top of our mantle place uh and uh in a space of a special honor in the bowdern household but i did want to say that i am very appreciative and uh thankful for you for being understanding uh, in this time of incredible grief for me. And uh, I talked privately with Barry and told Barry that uh, this really hit me like like nothing that I've ever gone through before. And knowing that I had people out there that had my back uh, and that were there, uh, I talked to Barry, uh, I talked to my family. Uh, I want to say special thanks to my friend Dave Flaherty, who uh, I spoke to. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just uh, you need someone to listen uh, while you're going through the frustration, the pain, the anguish. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, uh, Barry, I 
I talk to him every day. And, you know, when I go out in the yard with Molly to take Molly out, uh, I talk to Gunny and I tell him that I miss him and that I look forward to the day that we will be reunited because I truly believe that we will be one day. And, uh, I really miss him. But Barry, I did want to say thank you uh, so much to all those people that were, that were there for me with a, a message or word. And, uh, it is truly appreciated. Yeah, you know what, too, Jeff, this is one of those things, too. We, we've talked a lot when we started this podcast some five years ago. We really weren't sure. We knew certain things. We knew that you wanted to do a, a, a match of the week and, uh, we wanted to do, uh, top matches of the eighties, et cetera. But we didn't know the direction a lot of this was going to go. And one of the things that we found out was, uh, and we probably should have realized this ahead of time is that because people do get to hear us for a couple hours every week. And then when there's a Patreon, even more that we become friends with them. It's just the nature of the beast and we're there to support them. You know, we've got a listenership of several thousand and whether it's uh death, divorce, uh, or something horrific, you know, it, we're there to support them. But in return, Jeff, it was not something that we ever thought about. They're there to support us. Right. And absolutely. Absolutely. When you went through cancer, it was, uh, it was a big deal. And, uh, Obviously, because you were in a fight for your life and people were contacting you, people were contacting me on a daily basis. And even with the passing of Gunny, which now goes on, I'm assuming about nine or 10 days now, I had people reaching out to me. Hey, can you pass on uh, my condolences to Jeff? Jeff, I, I did have to share your address with a couple of people that are uh, wanted to surprise you with gifts, things that will uh, probably be bringing a tear to your eye. But I guess, again, long-winded my point being our listeners support us. And by reaching out to us as they did with my divorce and the, the struggles and things that you've been through, this is this is huge. This is much more than I think we ever bargained for when we started the podcast. Yeah. And so uh, on that note, again, thank you all uh, so much. Uh, it was very much appreciated. Barry, I tell you what, before we go to our match of the week, uh, I would be completely remiss not to discuss the fact that uh, wow. A lot of our friends, uh, in Florida, especially in the Southwest uh, portion of Florida, uh, were hugely affected by Hurricane Ian. Uh, our friends, uh, Ben and Kelly, uh, I know, um, was it, uh, Mark Russ and some others. And then this thing cut a swath through the middle of the state, uh, and just, uh, but the Southwest corner, Sanibel Island, which, uh, have you ever been to Sanibel Island, Bear? I spent uh, a great portion of my youth there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I had a chance to go to Sanibel Island on one occasion, uh, with the, uh, first Mrs. Bowdrin, she who shall not be named. Uh, and, uh, actually one of my fond memories uh, of my time with, uh, the first Mrs. Bowdrin was, uh, when we went over and spent the day there, uh, and, uh, just, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful location. And my fear is that, uh, the Sanibel Island that you and I knew, Barry, uh, will probably never be the same. It, it's absolutely, I mean, so I was on a couple of Facebook groups today. One was, do you remember that restaurant, the bubble room on, it's I, either on Sanibel or Captiva. Here's I, something interesting as well. No one has mentioned Captiva on any reports that I've seen, like Captiva is just gone. It doesn't exist any longer, which may be the case. Captiva was really, I guess, the, uh, the farthermost point of Sanibel Island. And it was, uh, the bubble room was an institution. But I, if you look, the, the bridge, A, going to Sanibel. Unless yeah, you're gone. 
yeah. gone. The bridge is gone. Like literally it ain't happening. Like it's just gone. And obviously, uh, you know, understanding infrastructure and things like that, there's not going to be a bridge built overnight, meaning anybody that's got a residence on that island, and I'm talking a full-time residence, if they plan, they're going to have to have a boat. There's just no way to get on and off that island. And if you're taking a boat, you're taking a boat into Fort Myers, and you've seen the photos of Fort Myers at this point. It is devastating. You and I both went through Hurricane Andrew. I got to tell you, I think that was uh one of arguably the most scary experiences of my life. Looking at this, though, Jeff, I I can't even imagine what people that we know, people that we love, what they had to go through. Yeah, and I know that uh, I reached out to our friends uh, Frankie and Jana Seacrest uh, because initially the storm was supposed to ground zero was supposed to be Tampa. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, the, the concern was because Frankie and Jana live right by the water. Uh, it was that their house was just going to be wiped out, uh, and they had gone up to North Carolina. Then, of course, the storm heads up to North Carolina, so I think they went to Tennessee and then came back home. And as it turned out, they uh, had relatively uh, minor damage uh, in their backyard, but uh, comparatively speaking to what they could have faced, obviously, it's really uh, not that uh, not that bad at all. But uh, so many friends of ours that live in the state of Florida that were impacted. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know that uh, as the storm was coming across, uh, I know that uh, some of the outer liars uh, of the storms uh, hit Hollywood, uh, where <clears throat> two of my uh, wives are f- from Hollywood, Barry. That's why I uh, made sure that Kim wasn't from there. And uh, but there were some tornadoes that touched down in Hollywood. And so this storm, like Andrew, literally covered the entire southern part of the state of Florida. It was just huge. And uh, something that this is not, you know, like, oh, uh, tomorrow it's going to be all forgotten about and everything's going to be fine. And, uh, you know, this oh, is no. this is going to take years to recover years. from. And quite frankly, Barry, no offense to anyone there. This is part of the reason why I moved out of the state of Florida. Yeah. And I, that's you make a great point too. having lived through Hurricane Andrew in New York City during 9-11, uh, which obviously was not a uh, natural disaster. But m- my point being. Uh, this stuff is with you and part of your life for years. I remember when Hurricane Andrew hit, and I, I think I was without power for two, three, four days. I forget the exact time frame. But once I was back where I was living and watching television, I want to say it was part of the news for the next year. Without fail, especially for the first three to six months, it was the lead story every night. I'm sure that's occurring right now. And again, our thoughts and prayers go to everybody that's been affected by this. Uh, Terry Frederick, which Jeff, I believe you met Terry Frederick at the last fan fest. Terry Frederick was posting photos. He lived in Fort Myers and I think he was at a ground floor apartment or maybe it was a townhome because his, and I haven't spoken with him. I just saw the Facebook post. Everything on the first floor is lost. So they had massive water damage, and I'm assuming that it's uh, two floors. Maybe it's a house or a townhouse, but he lost everything on the first floor, and that's just one person that we actually know. Apparently, uh, there are people that they are anticipating are still waiting to be uh, rescued. There's going to be a lot of people that, unfortunately, will not be able to be rescued This is frightening. And I'll tell you what, hurricanes are a weird thing. And you know, Jeff, you were a Floridian for so many years. 
for a, for a lot of people, it it becomes it's an excuse to party. It's also uh, an excuse to say, I'm not leaving. I've been through this shit before and I, I'll be able to take this one. I have a feeling that everybody that stayed in Sanibel, because a lot of people stayed and people that stayed in Fort Myers are regretting that decision. So, you know, no secret. Well, I've been wanting to move to Florida, Jeff, for uh, for several years now. But I got to tell you, if I'm in the path of a major hurricane, I will be getting in my car, uh, love, lovely Ozzy and Linda by my side, and I will be making the trip to safe ground. Uh, will you uh, be considering a move to Montana? No. Okay. I will just, not. <laughs> just wanted to check. Yes, I, I actually had a, uh, a friend who lives in Florida that was like, well, I'm stop, uh, stocking up on the Pepsis. And, you know, here's the thing, and, and then we'll get to our match of the week. You know, one thing, much like, you know, they talk about how, how you can't predict a tornado or what it's going to do. You know, for a, a few days, all we heard was, oh, this thing's hitting Tampa. And, you know, with Hurricane Andrew, oh, this thing's going to hit Broward. And then at the last minute, it wobbled, and Ground Zero was Homestead, which is in west, the western part of Dade County. Yeah. And Homestead... I drove down there a couple of days afterwards with uh, Mrs. Bowdrin number two, and it literally looked like a bomb had gone off and the entire town was wiped out. I mean, Homestead was devastated, and that's exactly what's happening now in Fort Myers uh, and over on the southwest coast because what was originally supposed to hit Tampa wobbled and hit the you know Fort Myers area and uh, Sanibel and thereabouts, and so you never know. So when you're sitting there saying, I'm going to get me a couple Pepsis and ride this thing out uh, because this thing isn't going to hit me, eh, you don't always know. No, so. and here's the other big thing, too, is uh, – and I, I, I read a report today, and I think – and I actually shared this with you before we went on air, you and Sweet Lou, that they say property values are going to come down, I guess home values, by 50% in the state of Florida because people are now going – as if it wasn't already extremely difficult, getting insurance and flood insurance for a home in Florida is almost non-existent. And I've heard yeah, good that, luck. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard that insurance companies may actually file for bankruptcy and may go out of business because they just don't have the money to uh, to pay that. So, so to with that, this has changed my game plan a little bit because now I have to look at uh, places that are not in a flood zone which in Florida leaves me about three options, I think. There's not a whole lot there. Uh, the other thing that you brought up, Jeff, which was interesting, was what did occur, and I think it was called Country Walk, if I'm correct, down in set, which is amazing with uh, my depleted memory, but I can remember it was called Country Walk, and it was uh, down in, I guess, the Homestead area, and but they, they were able to put a lot of that on the builder, and apparently it had been some sort of because you could look and there were like some houses that were next to uh, another house where, you, as you said, it looks like a fucking bomb went off. Like it's hard to imagine. But there's a well, house let's, that let, appears be to be pristine. And then there's one where a bomb went off and they were able to pin that on the developer. Well, uh, to be honest, let's be honest. Uh, when Andrew hit, Florida hadn't seen a hurricane in probably 25 years, uh, that it hit anywhere near South Florida. So let's just say some of the codes uh, for the buildings were not being uh, uh, kept up to an exemplary right. nature, and that was soon discovered by all the houses that had their roofs essentially blown right off. And, you know, I can still, God, 30 years 
plus now still remember some of the videos of people literally uh taking uh with a with a video camera uh because we didn't have phones back then uh, video you know it's on our phones uh, but people hiding in their bathtubs i mean entire families cowering in their bathtubs and you know as their home is essentially collapsing uh on top of them and just horrifying horrifying things and uh so just to wrap this up, we are extremely glad and happy that our friends uh, that are part of the brothership uh, have made it through uh, with, uh, first of all, safe. And if there is any damage to their home, uh, you know, as long as, as you're OK, that's the important thing. So let's get back to uh, what we do here. Uh, and that's uh, have fun. And uh, why don't we go to our, our match of the week? So, Barry, our match of the week this week, we're going to June 10th, 1988 in Hiroshima, Japan. It is our old favorite Owen Hart taking on Kichi Yamada, pre-Jushin Thunder Liger Kichi Yamada. And this is one of my top 100 of the 80s. Little key trivia note that I uh, realized, Barry. Uh-oh. Hiroshima is Kichi Yamada's hometown. Did you, in fact, know that before you started watching this match? I did not. I don't okay. think I knew that even even watching this match, I didn't even yeah, know Well, that. some solid trivia coming from the booker. So yeah. uh, I will say this is Barry Rose's kind of match. It goes an hour and a half. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually less than 10 minutes. Uh, so it is Barry Rose's uh, short, sweet, and to the point kind of match. Uh, so, Barry, why don't you tell the folks, what did you think of this match, Owen Hart versus Kichi Yamada? And, by the way, Owen, at this point, defending his IWGP uh, Junior Heavyweight Championship. Yeah, and so Yamada growing up in Hiroshima, I'm guessing. Or Hiroshima, either Hiroshima, one. which I'm, yeah, I'm guessing uh, age-wise, how old is he? Mid-50s would probably be right? Who, Yamada? Yeah. Uh, approximately, yeah. Probably a couple of years younger than us. I wonder how it was growing up in Hiroshima, uh, during his childhood, being that it might have been 15, 20 years removed, obviously, from a major event happening. I think that's, uh, that's interesting. This is a really good match. Uh, definitely one of, uh, a match that I would like based off the time. I think it's like nine minutes, eight or nine minutes. With that, I think one of the flaws of the match is that it's way too short. Yeah. And that I, that's I think. That's very fair. Yeah, these guys could have gone and, and, you know, it, the sad part is I don't know what else was on this card that would, uh, set the precedent for them going eight or nine minutes. I would hate to think, and I have a feeling, you know, it was probably a match that uh, didn't deserve, uh, the time. There were, uh, you know, some guys, maybe it was Sakaguchi, uh, who was, I believe, still wrestling at that, that stage. And he was a fine worker, but nobody's really going to top these two guys. You know, it's going to be just a, a handful of guys in New Japan at this stage that would have topped it. But they were running some big angles, Ricky Choshu, Maeda, et cetera. So who knows what else was on this card. Uh, as you mentioned, Yamada no mask. Now, I, I think I'd only seen one or two other matches. Uh, uh, and I think one was a Calgary match where Yamada was not wearing a mask as Jushin Thunder Liger. Makes sense why he was wearing the mask, though. When you see it, he, he does have an odd face. Is that, is that, is that? Look at you, Mr. Judgmental. Everyone grab a chair because I am going to be super judgmental, but let's be honest. He's got an odd looking face and I, I've always heard he had horrible skin, et cetera. I, I don't see that, but what I see here is a guy that looks like an owl 
almost. He's got this kind of big head, and then the features are directly in the center, like almost too close together. It just looks odd, but I, I, I think there was some logic into putting him into a mask. And st- don't let that take away from his ability, because I, I still think he's probably one of the greatest of all time. But just an odd, odd look. Uh, question for you, too, Jeff. Did everyone know that Yamada was underneath the mask as Liger. There, there was no pretense in trying to hide that, right? No, I don't believe so. Not at all. Okay. So it, that's what it would make sense because he does wrestle the same style and, you know, physically was always in good shape, a little shorter stature, but, uh, he seems identical to Liger, uh, for the most part. Owen does a version of the octopus. And I gotta say, I, I think Anoki made that famous in Japan. Anoki had his octopus hold. Uh, and it was the one where the, the leg goes over the head. And boy, is that super impressive. And we should say too, for anybody that's seen Owen Hart, and he had some great matches in Calgary. He had some, I, I guess, good matches in the WWF. His Japanese stuff is at a different level. And I, I gotta tell you, I, if you had only seen Owen Hart in the WWF, WWE, whatever it was called at that stage, he, uh, he may not have been overly impressive to you. And I don't think that was his fault. Clearly that was uh, the booker, one of the agents, you know, the hierarchy up there and not trying to steal the spotlight from less talented workers who were drawing, et cetera. But uh, Owen Hart, in my opinion, I, I saw him have a couple of very good matches. One was against Bret Hart at Madison Square Garden, WrestleMania 10, which was at the time we were doing Chair Shots newsletter, Jeff, as a throwback, which is 30 years ago. Uh, Ouch. Right? No shit. How did that happen so quick? And uh, But I was – I think I said it was a wrestling clinic between the two, and it was. But the truth was Owen never really showed because he couldn't. His hands were tied. His legs were tied. Uh, Boy, he shows what he's got here. And this guy – and I'm going to say, too, what year is this from? Is this like 87, 88? 88. June 10th, 1988. What year did Owen start wrestling? Um, actually, or uh, technically? Well, yeah. <laughs> right. I, no, no, because yes, I, I, right. I think to answer the question, I think he was uh, a rookie in 19, I want to say, 86. Yes. But there are stories that um, that Meltzer has said that Owen was wrestling. He would uh, go to different spot towns and stuff like that, and if somebody didn't show up, they'd put under a, uh, Owen under a hood when he was like, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old and have him go out and wrestle in the guy's place under a hood. So, yeah, but even to that end at, if you figure, okay, if this is 80, you said 80, 88. Yes. If this is 88, even if he's had, let's say 500 matches under his belt, uh, which I don't know that, that just seems and that may even be a little bit big. The guy is still unbelievable at this stage in his career because I've heard those stories and I believe that as well. Uh, but it, it, to see what he's capable of and essentially still being green. And I know, look, he was probably getting stretched when he was seven or eight years old. Uh, I get it. But to be able to, and to be as fluid and as smooth in the ring as he was, uh, to me, some people are born with it. You're a natural, and Owen Hart was a natural. Uh, this is a short match again. This is a fast pace, fast paced match. I don't know. It, it, did I count two rest holds? I think, and even then, they rested for to the count of ten. So these two guys wanted to go. I think they let them go, but they were only curtailed by that eight or nine minute time limit, Jeff. But with that, is it a top 100 of the 80s? I don't know. 
based off of length of the match. With an additional 10 minutes, you might be looking at an all-time classic here. Yeah, and that's very fair. As I as I started watching it, I was the the first thing that came to my head was, you know, I really enjoyed this match. It's a really good match. Uh, it shouldn't be in, in the top 100 just because, as you said, it's a very short match. Uh, I think the guys probably knew each other for a while because uh, Kichi Yamada, like a lot of other New Japan wrestlers that we've discussed before, had gone to Calgary. He wrestled in Calgary, I believe, as Fuji Yamada. He also wrestled in England as Fuji Yamada, too, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So the guy certainly had a chance to see a lot of different styles uh, and the different countries that he was in, which was in part why when he became Jushin Liger, all the different guys that would come in for the uh, the tournaments, uh, the Super J Cups and stuff, he had seen all these guys uh, and had so many contacts that he brought in. And, you know, uh, something we haven't discussed in a while is all those junior tournaments, uh, I believe it was Yamada that was doing the booking for the wow. junior tournaments. And so, uh, and what was great about, uh, Yamada was Yamada was not necessarily a guy that always felt the need. Tell me if we are familiar with guys like this, Barry, that felt the need to put himself over, uh, as the booker. Hmm, there's a concept. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so not only was the guy a superior wrestler, one of the really greatest of all times. And, and as much as I love Owen, uh, you know, Yamada as Jushin Liger, probably ended up being better than Owen was, which, you know, I, I don't know if that's going to make someone go, mm, what? You know, I love both guys, but, you know, like uh, as Jushin Liger, that guy might have been the greatest junior heavyweight of all time. And, you know, not only that, but you in- incorporate the fact that he was booking these guys very unselfishly, allowing other guys to really get the rub, to really get over. And so I think that speaks very well uh, for Yamada, not only as a wrestler, but as a guy in the locker room that wasn't afraid to let other guys shine uh, and get the spotlight, which, again, is is something that not every booker has the ability to do. Uh, sometimes it's really hard, uh, first of all, uh, to take the to take the shine off yourself, but also to, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, have the trust you know, and, and people that you don't work with all the time. It's real easy to trust a guy that you see in the dressing room, uh, every night. But when you have someone coming in from uh, a different country, uh, that maybe you're going to see eh, two or three times a year, is it really easy to trust that guy to do what you want him to do to come, you know, if you give him a belt, uh, is that guy's going back to the United States or going to Mexico or to Calgary or wherever to come back, uh, with that belt and be willing to lose the strap as part of the storyline that you've created? Uh, and that really speaks well of Yamada, uh, again, not only as a professional wrestler, but as a, uh, an incredibly talented booker and personality, a guy that, uh, came over. Uh, I know he wrestled as Jushin Liger. I know he did some spots in, uh, ROH. Uh, I don't know if he was in, um, TNA or uh, any of the other places. Of course, he also wrestled, uh, Brian Pillman in WCW. So, uh, just a legendary figure. Uh, this match, as Barry said, Given 10 more minutes, easily could have been a uh, an all-time classic. Uh, it's different looking at Yamada without the uh, the hood that so many of us know him, uh, know him from. Uh, there's really not a lot of Kichi Yamada matches out there, but I can tell you that one of the things that happened in New Japan and in All Japan, too, uh, to be fair, is the fans would fall in love with the guys, say, in the first two or three matches, you know, like the young boys uh, who would really go out there and start, uh, you know, 
is starting to create a buzz. And, you know, we, we've seen guys, we've reviewed matches before where it's guys, wow, we really didn't know this guy. Uh, uh, I know we did the, uh, the speedball Bailey match, uh, with, uh, the, uh, was it Kaneska? Uh, you, you oh, know, they got more, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From I San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, I can't pronounce that. was a great match. Yeah. And it was like two guys who were completely under the radar, uh, guys. And so we really enjoyed the fact that here are these two guys we really weren't that familiar with at the time. And we're like, holy shit, this is a great match. And that's what would happen with some of the undercard guys in uh, Japan where they would start, you know, shining in the uh, first, second or third match. So by the time their chance, uh, was given to them to appear either in the semi main or the main, it was like the crowd pop because the crowd at the live uh, events would all know these guys. Uh, maybe the people that were on TV weren't as familiar with them. So it was kind of cool, uh, when you see a guy like Kichi Yamada, who is still, yeah, really at this point, he was still kind of a young boy for New Japan to really get his uh, chance to shine, especially in his hometown. And again, you know, here you're in your hometown. Yes, you get to shine, but you also have to, you have to take the loss in front of all your fans and, you know, all the people that have probably watched you, uh, you know, from the, I think, I want to say Yamada debuted around 1984, 85, something like that. So he, he, like Owen, had not been wrestling that long. So you see two guys that really hadn't wrestled that long, and yet they're out there having this kind of match really says something for both guys, Bear. Yeah, so you, you said something that I thought was interesting. And every once in a while I do. Occasionally we do. Occasionally we have a conversation uh, like every day, right, Jeff? But what what you said Booking in Japan and a booker in Japan, let's say versus a booker in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., I, I think, and let's just let's pick out Dusty Rhodes because that that always seems like the place it's supposed to go. But uh, for years in the U.S., bookers were actually booking themselves. They were booking a territory at the same time. They were thrusting themselves into uh, the spotlight. They had to be the focus of attention, etc. Even when uh, interest or gates may have dropped off, they kept doing it. But in Japan, we don't really see that quite as much. And I, I, I think the reason is it's not really tolerated that if a guy is, uh, and I think Yamada again, and Yamada booked himself to win, but at the same time, also booked himself to lose plenty of times. What do you think? Uh, and, and first off, it, you being much more of an expert on Japanese wrestling than I am, would you say that's a fair assessment that a guy trying to book himself? And if he's trying to book himself to the stratosphere, a la Dusty Rhodes, he would have been termed in that position. Um, I don't know if he would have been termed. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the great bookers in Japan, uh, Ricky Choshu was a great booker. Um, uh, you have, uh, now you have Gato, who's been the booker for New Japan for years, uh, and is, you know, really not put in a bit. He doesn't really get in the ring. He manages like one, you know, the heels. Uh, and he was, uh, the manager for, uh, for years for, um, oh God, why did I just draw a complete blank? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> The guy that's the friggin' lead babyface for New Japan, Barry. Uh, uh, Okada. Okada. Yes, he was. Okay. He was Okada's manager for years. Thank you. And uh, you know, absolutely but right. Li- literally, it's not like Gato is going out there and being the lead babyface in the promotion, uh, unlike Dusty Rhodes. Uh, you know, and Ricky Choshu, I believe, when he was the booker during a real hot time uh, for New Japan, uh, I think he was not main eventing. He would kind of work the middle of the card, you know, like tag matches, that kind of thing. And, you know, the, a, a guy that we always uh, 
bring up when you're talking about guys that did a really good job as being a booker and wrestler is like when Bill Dundee was the booker for Mid-South. Bill Dundee never booked himself into the main event in Mid-South. He was like, he worked a middle of the card program. Uh, he was in like tag matches and stuff like that. So he was on the card, but he wasn't putting himself over as the, the main guy. And, you know, I, I, it just so happened the other night I, I went and we're getting really off tangent here. Like we always do. Uh, I, I saw a clip the other night that I was watching of the, uh, the famous angle where, um, Tully Blanchard, uh, attacks the uh the now uh, crippled magnum ta and then dusty Rhodes comes out and uh starts hitting uh tully with the bat and uh you know there's the famously where jj literally like brings magnum down to the uh the floor uh and and protects him and you know all credit to jj for doing that but you know here we have an angle that starts off with magnum ta and i and i get the fact that magnum was crippled you know and, and it's not like they could do a some sort of return match where magnum faces tully blanchard but Literally, the angle is about Dusty Rhodes. It's really not about Magnum because it's Dusty that comes out with the bat. It's Dusty that kicks Tully Blanchard's ass after he, uh, you know, throws a punch at, at the crippled Magnum TA for, for talking about him. And, you know, th- that was an opportunity for, uh, you know, Dusty to continue to get himself over again, you know, and there were so many examples of Dusty when guys were in a position to really be made the new star of the promotion and let Dusty kind of slip back into the mid card. And he certainly would have had a spot literally for another five years in the middle of the card as this legend, sort of like Bill Watts did in mid South or Eddie Graham did in CWF and Dusty could not give up that spot. And, you know, psychologically, I've never been in that position. Maybe it was very hard to do. Maybe it was very difficult to walk away from that spotlight. Some can Dusty Rhodes could not. Yeah, and that's fair too. And it's, you know, Dusty couldn't, Dusty wouldn't. Uh, and certainly he had, you know, it, there, for every detractor, there was a supporter as well. Uh, it's interesting because you can talk, you can walk into a room full of wrestlers and uh, a certain percentage are going to say Dusty fucked him over in their career. And others are going to say Dusty was the one responsible for my success. Uh, Glacier, Ray Lloyd will, you know, couldn't be, a bigger supporter and fan of Dusty and said that any success he's had in wrestling, he owes to Dusty. So I, I, I think as with everything, there's got to be a checks and balances kind of system to this. And I, I think for years in the U.S., we weren't seeing that. I think now it's a different story. I mean, who's going to check and balance Tony Khan, right? Tony Khan can do whatever he well, wants. Well, and it's funny you mention that, All right. uh, not to interrupt, because let's uh, segue very smoothly into the next thing oh. I want to talk about. You uh, you watched AEW last week, correct? I did, correct. Yes, okay. So AEW for this particular week uh, with the hurricane, uh, I don't know if the hurricane had hit or the hurricane was looming at that point, Hurricane Ian, uh, but Tony Khan had issued the edict that if anyone – uh, didn't want to appear in Jacksonville because of travel issues or they're, uh, you know, worried about their home or whatever. It, he would basically give them a pass and they didn't need to appear. So what happened is you had a, uh, a lineup that was extremely limited and extremely thin in my regard, uh, in, in my opinion. So what happens is you have this segment with the women where you have the newly arrived with Soraya, something like that, Bear. Uh, I think it's Soraya, but yeah. Soraya, okay. It's Soraya. Uh, who, who of course is one of the top 10 British wrestlers of all time, oh, yeah. uh, according to Mr. Helwani. Uh, but so I'm watching this segment 
And as I watched this segment, all I could think of was, oh, my God, this is absolutely excruciating. How much longer is this thing going to go on? So, Barry, you tell me if I was wrong in that assessment. No, it was, uh, so that was a tough show to watch. So first off, we should say, uh, I think Tony Khan did the right thing. Oh I no, think, that's very fair. Yeah, I, I think, uh, considering in, in looking at the destruction and, uh, in seeing what took place, even having a live show in Jacksonville, I think first off was a gift, uh, for wrestling fans. And the truth was, I, to me, it was the bookends. I thought the beginning and the ending were great. I thought the middle was exactly what it sounds like. It was the middle of a show. And, and I can't remember a whole lot other than that horrible segment. Uh, but you know, there, I, I think what you're going with is that the, that show showed how weak AEW could be. And they, I don't know how many wrestlers they currently have under contract. I know it's way too many and we're not seeing enough guys on TV, but at the same time, it almost seems like we're seeing the same guys on TV week after week and a lot of other guys we aren't seeing. And I'm not really sure why Brian Cage is a great example. Brian Cage is a guy that if you've only seen him in AEW, you haven't seen a thing. He's to me, he's been horribly booked. He hasn't looked impressive. I saw Brian Cage, uh, before he went, uh, to impact before he was in AEW. I saw him on a Tommy Dreamer show years ago. I think I saw him twice, actually, two or three times. And I got to tell you, here was a guy that looked like superstar Billy Graham that was doing Lucha Libre moves. So talk about impressive. I mean, it was just unheard of. But yet, I think we've seen him on TV over the last couple of years, twice, maybe three times. I know he was on the Battle Royal a week and a half ago. They clearly don't want to do anything. Maybe he's a pain in the ass behind the scenes. I know there was a bunch of back, backstage drama. My point, long-winded as usual, Jeff, you got a lot of talent. What are we, what are you guys doing? Why is it Sammy and Ty Mello every week? And you know, why is it the same? Why well, are we seeing, why, why are we not seeing Rusev, uh, and we're getting Jade Cargill shoved down? <laughs> there you go. Jade uh, Cargill. I, yeah. You, well, it, look, you're right. You're right about that. I will say in Rusev, what I've heard, uh, he debuts on a television show, uh, I believe the day that we're recording this, which is the day before the episode drops. I think tonight, Jeff, he has got a recurring character on some television show. So that would explain. The Bachelor? <laughs> Yeah, well, that that would be fun actually if it was, right? It, it's not the Bachelor, but he, uh, you know, look again. I, the point is, there's, there, you know, Trent. Again, I said it last week. Trent Beretta and Chuck Taylor, and I like Trent. I'm not really a huge fan of Chuck Taylor, but at the same time, it, you know, these guys are on TV almost every week, or at least on Rampage every week. There's a lot of talent that we aren't seeing. Jade Cargill, I get, they look at her. I mean, Chuck Taylor to me is there because he's going to do a job, right? That makes sense. Jade Cargill, they're pushing because she looks like a million dollars. She's actually gotten a little better in the ring. She's still light years away from where she probably should be with this push. But that being said, how many guys aren't we seeing and why, Jeff? Well, and getting back to the original uh, comment, you had uh Soraya, Soraya, uh whatever coming out there. And here we've got all you know, like when they first introduced her and you see all these people in the crowd, oh my god, it's her, it's her. Uh, you know, and they're losing their shit. 
uh, because here is somebody that's quote unquote a former WWE superstar that they've signed. And so you're like, okay. And this is again, somebody that I want to say she was number seven on that Helwani list as the greatest British wrestler of all time. And she came out and she took the microphone and literally it was the proverbial fart in church. It was, and I'm going, wait a minute. Like, why would you put this person in this position if she can't fucking talk, you know, or if she can talk, make sure before she goes out to the ring. Okay. Tell me what you're going to say. Uh, give me an idea of what you're going to say. Uh, da, 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 okay. Uh, yeah, uh, okay. Fine. Go, you know, uh, just so you know what her talking points are going to be. But she got out there and it was like, she kind of started meandering. And then it was like, ah, I want all the girls to come out of here. And they uh, had about four or five of them come out and she puts over, uh, you know, the girls, uh, the baby face girls. And then Britt Baker came out there. And once Britt Baker grabbed the microphone, it was like, well, we see which one of you two can talk and which one of you can't. And again, it was just like, this is the per, you know, what did, what did I read that she was it a three or a five year contract they signed her to? And I think it's three, right? I think yeah, it was. But, but I'm also reading that she isn't going to wrestle. Because she's got some, you know, injury history, which that's fine. You know, nobody wants to see her if she's injured to go out there and get hurt. But really, is it that big a deal if you've essentially done another, uh, you know, big show, Mark Henry, uh, you know, uh, no offense, Arn Anderson, where it's just somebody that, oh, yeah, I remember you from 10 years ago, you know, but now what are you doing? Nothing, you know, and uh, or is she going to turn into Vicky Guerrero where they're going to use her for three shows and then forget about her and. Oh, you know what? We haven't used that woman for, uh, for the last six shows. Uh, you know, it's, it's really embarrassing. And especially on a show that going in, I was thinking, well, let's see what they're going to do to kind of flesh this show out. And they did the Jericho, you know, bit. Uh, and that was good. But, you know, afterwards I read there was only two guys that I think no showed the card and that was Swerve. And it was one other person. Uh, but so it wasn't like, you know, they were down 15, 20 guys. And so that's why they had to have this uh, long uh, situation, long angle with the women, because holy crap, it was not only bad, it was painful to watch to me, Bear. Yeah, well, it it really was. And I should say, too, you mentioned Swerve. And Swerve is one of those guys that I think has just come in and just done a tremendous job. And I think that they're rec- Tony Khan is recognizing that because he's been getting a push. That heel turn, if it hasn't already occurred, it's been kind of ambiguous almost. Uh, that heel turns right around the corner. But uh, I think Swerve is a guy – you know, and, and here's the funny thing. I've never been the biggest Keith Lee fan. I – uh I think there's a role for Keith Lee. I, I, and I know for his size, he does incredible stuff. I hear on the indie circuit, he has done just tremendous stuff. But to me, Swerve is the star of that team. And, uh, Swerve is showing, uh, he can, he can cut it in the ring. He's innovative. Stuff looks good. His promos are good. Just the way he smiles, he's got it. it he's got the it factor. Someone who doesn't have the it factor though is Soraya, as you just said. That was as Bad a segment as you will ever see on professional on any professional wrestling show that wasn't meant to be bad. Sometimes the WWE would do those stupid skits where you just go, they they just you know this has got to be a rib on somebody. This was a out and out tank, and the truth was, Soraya does not have it. 
that was a horrible promo right from the get go. She was lost at times. And it, as you said, wasn't only until Britt Baker, somebody who does get it, came out, was able to get this thing back up on track. This also went, I don't know, somewhere near 15 minutes where a good four minutes might have actually worked for it. But uh, if she's not wrestling, and I've heard mixed, I've heard where she absolutely would have to be wrestling based off the size of the contract to doctors cannot clear her because I believe it was somebody said her neck is made out of paper. It might have been Britt Baker that night, which was a hell of a line. Uh, I don't, you know, where does the fault lie? Soraya saying she's rusty. I mean, give me a fucking break. I like I for the life of me, you're rusty. How long did you have to prep? You know, how long does a does a real actor? Jeff, we get on here and we talk, you know, granted, we're not uh, you're a professional. I'm not. But we do this every week with and we're not sitting. I am. Well, according to uh, to Lou Yar, right, Lou? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, buddy. <laughs> exactly. But and, and it's, re- you know, it, it's just another reason why we really should be on <clears throat> everyone's preferred to listen podcast, Barry. But you know, not everybody I, apparently uh, has us on their preferred list. <laughs> so, you know what, Jeff? We are not for everybody, and some of the people they're not for us, Jeff. That's the <laughs> that might be the best well, way to wait look a minute. At it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, I had my moment. I'm recovered now. Go ahead. All right. Uh, so with that, I, the excuses were, were bad. For Saray to come out and say, I'm a little rusty. Uh, she, I don't ever remember her ever being a great promo. I think she was adequate. She, in the ring, definitely decent. I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's. Well, and the thing is, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. If she, if she is not up to that moment as far as, uh, cutting a promo, they, they don't put her in that position. Yes. Exactly. I'm sorry. That's what Tony Khan has to. He has to hand the mic to somebody else that can handle that moment. In and his defense, she, and I only say it in his defense, he may have, uh, he may have, he may have had a conversation with her. You know, I'm asking you. These are big shoes you got to fill. Are you okay going in? And she may have said, absolutely. And let's be honest, it, it, Soraya, she she could do a promo. One, I remember seeing page promos in the Federation, with the exception of one, which was ridiculous. The one with the the smeared lipstick, where she's like, "I'm back," and she appeared to be under the influence. But I digress. She wasn't the worst promo. So Tony Khan may have said, do you feel comfortable doing it? Now, we don't know that conversation. She might have said, Tony, absolutely. I can handle this with a blindfold on, went out and tanked. The reverse, uh, the other side of that coin may have been, Tony, I don't know. I haven't cut a promo, a good promo in three or four years. I don't know if I'm ready. Why don't we give this a shot and I'll see. We don't know what the conversation was. But regardless, it smelled like a big stank shit, Jeff. So I'm trying to remember on a big stage. Can you think of another moment where a promo or a skit, an angle just went that far south that quickly? And I'm not trying to shit on the women here. Any, any, uh, male, female, whatever, uh, you know, like, uh, who got caught in a moment where the camera lights, you know, as Jim Ross used to famously say, uh, when the light comes on, you got to perform. Who had the lights go on and just like all of a sudden, whether they blanked uh, with the lights on or just fell way short? Can you think of anything quite that bad? Uh, yeah, I can. It was at uh, the night before your daughter's wedding. We were at a hotel. Derwin? 
Derwin. That's a callback. Four years ago? <laughs> That's a callback. That's four years yeah. ago, right? But yeah, Derwin was in the lobby watching TV, but somebody said, let's record a promo. And I think it was probably you. And then somebody was filming it and you went to me and I stood there and I was like, I don't know what the fuck to say. I don't know what you want me to say. So I think I tanked even worse than Soraya did. But how many sweet people- Lou chiming in Matt Hardy on his return to the WWE after the edge and Lita business. Well, okay. So a personal where the guy was sleeping with his girlfriend and apparently he was unaware of that. So, uh, so I could see that. I don't, and here's the thing. I don't think this is going to happen too often in the Federation because I think they are, uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, et cetera. They're, they're not going to put somebody out there. Occasionally somebody will slip by, but that's not going to happen. I think with AEW, we're, we're more apt to see it happen, Jeff. So Barry. Fair to say that the other day we lost a giant in the industry, uh, and, uh, Antonio Inoki, uh, truly one of the three biggest names, certainly in Japanese wrestling history, but in uh, wrestling history, uh, standing by itself, one of the true giants of the industry. So we wanted to, uh, reach out to our friend Kevin Kelly to join us to talk about the legacy of Inoki good and some not so good. Kevin, welcome back to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, my man. It's uh, always great to be with you guys. Of course, uh, it would be fun to just be here under normal, uh, jovial circumstances. But, uh, you know, the passing of an absolute legend uh, warrants uh, some good in-depth conversation. So we hope we can certainly give some some credence to that and lend some expertise to his, you know, just incredible uh, legacy and his wonderful name. Well, uh, let me just uh, start off uh, before we go in depth in his career uh, as the, uh, the lead announcer for new Japan's uh, wrestling broadcast. Uh, did you ever have the opportunity? I know he's, he stepped away from new Japan quite a while ago, but had you ever had the opportunity to meet Inoki? No, I did not. And that is a, a real regret um, in Having worked in the wrestling industry for the past 31 plus years, as, you know, as we all know, we've lost so many uh, great names, so many peers, so many friends, so many people that we know. And there are very few names that you say, wow, I wish, you know, the very few names where I say, wow, I wish I could have met that person because I've been so fortunate over the years to have met so many greats and had the opportunity to work with so many greats. But Antonio Inoki was one that I never got the chance to meet. We were secretly hoping uh, that he would recover enough or feel well enough to maybe join us at some point during the year to come to an event, perhaps Wrestle Kingdom this coming January 4th. And we, we, you know, we never got that chance. Uh, So, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's kind of a hole in my bucket list of meeting all-time greats, no doubt. So, you know, in the in this country, in the U.S., Antonio Inoki certainly had worked. He had worked up in uh, Madison Square Garden. We saw him in Florida. Uh, he worked, uh, I believe it was the Hollywood Sportatorium in 1980. Uh, but he did. He would occasionally make appearances going back to the 60s. But realistically, most of the U.S. knows him based off of that mixed martial arts match that he had with Muhammad Ali in 1976. You having spent so much time over in Japan, 
I've always heard that that match is regarded completely different in Japan than the way that it was viewed over in America. Is that accurate, Kevin? I would say yes, that whereas many, you know, Western fans sort of saw it as either a novelty, a gimmick, or an abject failure, um, a lot of people in Japan saw it as Inoki's vision really coming forward on the biggest stage of all, fighting the biggest fighter that there was. Because Inoki wanted to prove that wrestling was the king of sports. So he fought the judo and he fought the karate and he fought the giant and he fought the, you name it. And by fighting the boxer, the world champion boxer, the biggest name in boxing around the world, that proved Inoki's vision true. So it added to his credibility, incredibly, you know, and, and this was 1976 and New Japan had only been formed in 1972. So there was still a lot of meat on the bone and, and that credibility was everything to him and led to a great increase in his popularity and worldwide scope, but mostly, you know, in Japan, it only made him bigger. So I think when you talk about Inoki, uh, there are so many positives, uh, not, not just the, the vision, as you said, of the Ali fight, uh, which for all you want to say about it, you know, uh, the name recognition that it, it gave him uh, forever. He was the guy that fought Muhammad Ali, uh, and you have to give him credit for that. Uh, a tremendous, tremendous draw in his home country. So if you could sort of uh, uh, conceptualize for us just how big was Inoki in his country. Uh, is there anyone in this country that, like, could you say he was to what Hulk Hogan was, or was it bigger than that? What would you say? He had a, a, a definite crossover uh, and was a household name was as if people think wrestling, you ask a fan of a certain age who, you know, a professional wrestler and they will, depending on their age, they could say anybody from John Cena, uh, the rock or stone cold, Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan. Um, and then older, older fans might say Bruno, you know, but in Japan, it was Ricky Dozan. Then the country was split in two divided with giant Baba, and Antonio Inoki, separate companies. And depending on which you were a fan of, that was your guy. But Inoki had more uh, mainstream press and was more out front, was on more television shows and was on more uh, different things outside of wrestling, which they always talk about, let's get the casual fan. Well, uh, both companies did that, but certainly... Uh, Inoki himself was a mainstream pop culture figure in Japan for so many, you, many, many, many years, far beyond even when his wrestling career ended. And then he got into politics, et cetera, et cetera. He was still mainstream. So would The Rock be a better comparison than Hulk Hogan? Because of the movies, probably a little. Uh, yeah, the movie business is a little different in Japan, but he was more like a. A, a television fixture, a news fixture. There was reporting on him and there was reporting on Baba and all Japan as well. But um, yeah, I mean, depending on your point of view, if you looked at the biggest wrestling figure uh, 
I, I would say that The Rock is probably the biggest show business star who also wrestled now at this point. And Inoki was comparable to Hogan, who was the wrestler who also did other things, who also did movies, et cetera. And so a fair the- amount of scandal. I would, you know, again, if you want to put, if you want to compare Hogan and Inoki, they're pretty close in terms of scandal as well, which is some of the bad. With the, Listen, you you live life in the public eye and you make mistakes and you do things you regret. You, you know, things are going to be magnified. Rock's reputation is pristine. Uh, Hogan's been dragged through the mud a little bit, self-inflicted wounds and whatnot. And Inoki was kind of in that regard. I would I would really compare him more with Hogan. Wow. So and that that is a that's a very interesting comparison. So having never met Inoki, was there anybody in your head that when you when you became part of the New Japan commentating team, you were like, shit, I hope that I get to meet this guy. Was it Sakaguchi or Fujinami, somebody like that? Was there somebody that you really wanted to meet and you did get to meet them? Well, I've gotten to meet Masahiro Chono, which was for me. Uh, first and foremost, that was like, he was a guy that I identified with. And because I, having jumped into, uh, New Japan fandom a little later, Inoki was already done and we had moved on. I never got to meet Shinya Hashimoto. So Chono was, was that guy for me. I had seen, uh, Keiji Muto, but he didn't have, where I saw him, it was like at a, when he was doing an autograph signing, and I just didn't feel that aura about Muto the way I felt when I saw Masahiro Chono, because he just he's the embodiment of cool, and the same guy that you got the vibe from when he would be in the ring wrestling or or just you know cutting a promo or doing whatever, he's still that embodiment of cool when he was backstage getting ready to announce for Wrestle Kingdom, uh, and I jumped over and said. I told Jeff Jones, I said, please, I, I need to get a picture with Chono. And he says, oh, me too. <laughs> so, yeah, we were we were jumping at that. Um, and, and seeing Sakaguchi and realizing who he is, some foreign wrestlers didn't even know know his name. And when I would tell them who he was, they would go, okay. And I would go, yeah, he was like the lieutenant general underneath the, you know, four-star general Inoki. Oh, okay. He was Anoki's right hand man. And we would see Sakaguchi occasionally, mostly at Ryogoku. Uh he still maintains an office presence, but none of us ever go to the office. And um is is you know, you can tell he's obviously getting on in years and he's very nice, very quiet, soft spoken, um, but a wonderful gentleman. So yeah, there but there was nobody like Anoki. And there never will be anyone like Anoki. Uh it Maybe, maybe in time. Um, but obviously what he meant to New Japan, what he meant to the industry, he's more comparable to what I would think of as Vince McMahon. And that Vince had that larger than life feel that he was bigger than the industry uh, and that the universe kind of swirled around him. That's the vibe I get from Inoki and everybody who ever came in contact with him. He had, he would have interactions with people that would surprise people. Rocky told me, Rocky Romero told the story. I think he told it on air before about when he was training at the original LA dojo 
and had dinged up his shoulder. And he hadn't said much to Antonio Inoki at all because he was a young man just training and, and keeping his head down, being quiet, paying attention. Um, and they were all out at dinner and Inoki saw him and called him over and Rocky immediately is pooping his pants, but said, I understand you hurt your shoulder. Let me work on it for you. And so there's Inoki in the bar stretching and pulling and twisting Rocky's injured shoulder. And at the end of it, you know, Inoki patted him on the back and said, basically, how do you feel? And Rocky's shoulder felt worse. And he said, thank you. It's so much, it's so much better. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's kind of the feel you got with Vince is you wouldn't say, what are you doing? Get off my shoulder. You know, you would say, yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, you'd grit your teeth and bear it. Um, it, it and, and, but again, just that, that larger than life persona, it, it, it's, it can't be duplicated. It's uh, amazing. And you know what a story his life was. And on the day that he passed, it was the 60th anniversary of the day that he and Baba both started their training. I mean, come on. We're, we're, it's just, just what an incredible life. So when you talk, uh, you know, one of the things that I've said about Antonio Inoki, uh, as a observer from this country observing Japanese wrestling was it appeared that Antonio Inoki's vision was that he wanted the fans to think that he was literally the toughest man in the world, that he could fight any sort of type of uh, combat sport, uh, boxing, wrestling, uh, you know, shoot fighting, karate. He fought all these different guys from all these different fighting styles. And that's the way that he wanted to be presented. And then yet he could go into a pro wrestling ring, uh, and he could take on a very incredibly diverse group of opponents. And so I guess, first of all, when you just mentioned that Baba and Inoki literally got their start on the same day to the Japanese wrestling fan, compare Baba versus Inoki. And I guess what I want to say or, or ask you is, would it be fair to say that Baba was thought of more, especially because as fans age out, Baba will always be remembered as Baba the promoter, whereas Inoki might be remembered as Inoki the fighter. Would that be fair? Yeah, I definitely think so. That uh it and it, the the strength of all Japan was in the relationship with the NWA and the wide variety of foreign talent that came over and who and and competed for all Japan. Um because of that NWA affiliation, they had sort of first pick. And Inoki from the start was kind of playing catch up in that regard. And so he needed to be front and center as the one to create the fight that he would be in. Whereas Baba, the promoter, like you said, could rely on bringing Dory Funk Jr. over with the NWA world title or Jack Briscoe or Harley race. And then he would fit in when needed on that, uh, you know, the big match, Okay, but there were so many other guys with All Japan that gave you, that gave the fans there what they wanted. Um, and Inoki had to pull some things, some rabbits out of his hat. I mean, you look at the people with no wrestling experience who climbed into a wrestling ring and wrestled Antonio Inoki in Japan, or he would travel to their country and, and fight them in their, 
you know, in, in what their sport was and under their rules, uh, real maverick in, in, in that respect. Um, very dangerous. I don't think fans today realize the danger that Inoki was probably under constantly. Because if you think about it, if you're the, if you're the best at your given sport, you're putting your fighting reputation on the line against a professional wrestler. And the prevailing wind, of course, was always that professional wrestling was fake. Uh, and how bad would it be if you lost to a quote unquote fake fighter? So they would do what they needed to do to protect themselves and their reputation. And Oki would do the same. And sometimes signals would get crossed and, you know, business was not necessarily being done. So Noki had to kind of take matters into his own hands and was tough enough, had reputation enough, whatever, to be able to get out of it and escape with his life and his health intact. So there was a, a talk so many years ago, and I'm going back probably 40 or 45 years ago, that Anoki was looking at opening up some sort of promotion in the U.S. And this would have been around the same time. I think he was working with Pedro Martinez at a Buffalo. Uh, and it was Pedro's old, I think it was the NWF, Pedro Martinez, Johnny Powers, et cetera. And I know that Anoki was, was part of that, but then there was talk that he was going to come over and possibly do something in this country. Do you think, and this is based, obviously you've never met the man as you stated at the beginning of this conversation, but do you think that everything that you know about him, uh, whether Japan or the U.S., that he could have attempted something like that successfully? I, I think he could have attempted it. I think he probably would have attempted it. There were there were some things that that came about. Um, obviously, when he linked up with Pedro Martinez in the NWF, that was because I couldn't get the NWA and I needed a title, a championship with some regard, and build it up in the in the fans' eyes that this was this was equivalent to a world title. But that territory was was never in any real competition or they weren't really competing. But you know what I mean? It wasn't a big money territory. Um, if he wanted to, he could have come over and just probably he basically bought it. And and but but it wasn't ever it wasn't ever going to change because the markets and the and the talent that they were able to attract. Was that, you know, cause you were competing with Vince Sr., you're competing with the Sheik, you're competing with Bruiser, and they were all, and the NWF was kind of sandwiched in the middle. So it, it was always going to be what it was going to be. But if LA could have been an option, um, I, I, you know, that I would have probably have seen him more likely to be doing something in Los Angeles. Uh, but that territory was on its, you know, was kind of fading out by the time where he got financially able to really do something. Um, but yes, I could he would have absolutely. My goodness, the ego on that man—that's what makes him so great. Is no challenge was too big, and carried wrestling to North Korea for Christ's sakes, wrestling to Iraq. He saw it as the way to heal the world and also make money because he was pioneering new territories while he was doing this. He's opening up business relationships in new countries when he was, you know, carrying the mantra of 
you know, wrestling can bring peace. So here we've, we've lost the man, uh, this incredible megastar. And as much as I don't want to do this, I wonder whether or not part of his legacy besides, uh, everything that he did great as a wrestler and a promoter also has to be the scandals that were involved with him because he had more than his share. Uh, he had, uh, just to throw out a couple, he had some financial irregularities within the promotion. Uh, there was, uh, I just was reading today about, uh, the allegations that the, uh, the infamous title switch from Bob Backlund, uh, may have been an inside job between Inoki and the referee that Backlund didn't know about. Uh, and maybe that played a part in why the WWF never wanted to acknowledge Inoki as a champion. But then, uh, coming, coming back into the, even into the nineties when, uh, the new generation was ready to kind of take over New Japan, uh, Inoki was still doing things that led to guys like Mudo, uh, leaving the promotion, uh, and going out, uh, to all Japan and doing, you know, doing other things. So. Do you see his uh, legacy with rose-colored glasses because the man has just passed, Kevin? Or do we look at it uh, and say, yeah, there was so much that he was great at, but – and then also figuring the, uh, figure in the other stuff? I, I Obviously, uh, you cannot look at the whole picture and be truly honest with yourself and say, oh, well, you know, he – uh, he was misunderstood or he was, you know, misjudged. No, he did things wrong, whether it was financial improprieties, which led to uh, scandal uh, and self-imposed relegation, short-lived, comeback, et cetera, title switch. I don't believe that it was an inside job between he and the referee. I, I always believe that, you know, because back when, screamed from the top of his lungs to anybody who would hear in the garden as he's pitching a bitch and throwing furniture around that he was double-crossed by Arnie Skoland against the Iron Sheik. It's just the way Backlund protects himself and his legacy. Okay, fine. Um, but, you know, the obviously delving into and cannibalizing what he had built in professional wrestling for his vision of crossover with mixed martial arts in in one respect was brilliant, but in the other respect was so short-sighted and cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yes, in theory, this would work, but by nature, it's not going to work because of the types of, um, he wanted everybody to be as strong as, as he was and thought that everybody, okay, well, you could beat this guy because I beat this guy. It doesn't necessarily work like that. And, you know, as mixed martial arts began to grow and the types of sizes of fighters getting into the game began to grow, now all of a sudden it's a hell of a lot of different things and it cannibalized a lot of his own business. Well, let's integrate those guys into professional wrestling. If they do that, they can do this. No, that doesn't work either. And and that's probably, you know, there are many, many fans will know that Inoki almost destroyed his own company with the dalliances in the mixed martial arts as opposed to financial improprieties and set the company back years and killed off. And that was the reason that Muda left was because he didn't want to do this MMA garbage. And, you know, a lot of other people left with him. So, yeah, it's 
you can't you you, you got to take the bad with the good. You look at his picture in totality, and you can say the good far away the bad. Uh, the bad was an issue, and the bad can never be overlooked. And the bad lessons learned from the bad of Inoki, I think, are are vitally important for every promoter to learn. Take care of your core business. Never stray away from who you are too much, too fast. If you really think about it, though, let's compare Inoki and Vince McMahon and the similarities between them. Look at the way Vince turned away from professional wrestling that his father had built and built up his own brand of wrestling. Okay, good. Then as he starts to get into, well, the World Bodybuilding Federation, the XFL, every time he got away from his core business, movies, every time he got away from his core business, time after time, it suffered and died a horrible death. And and at the same time, financial improprieties and scandals with women. Okay, that's another comparison between Vince and, you know, and, and trouble with the law and this, that, and the other. There's, there's, there's so many comparisons with Vince. Somebody said, though, the other day, and when I had posted that, the, the, you know, the story of, of Inoki's passing, they said that, uh, and I forget who the fan was, he replied on Twitter and said, wow, one of the last pioneers in wrestling has died. And a pioneer is the way to look at Inoki. Pioneers don't do everything right. There are mistakes that are made along the way. And, but, but you cannot take away from the fact that Antonio Inoki was an incredible pioneer for pro wrestling and in many respects responsible for uh, the growth of mixed martial arts around the world, however you want to look at it. And his legacy can never be taken away from him. Well, so Kevin, I, I know that we've only got you for a few more minutes, uh, and then you, you definitely have to got to you got to scoot off. But Anoki, Giant Baba, Ricky Dozan, generally considered the three biggest names in the history of Japanese wrestling. Who would you put at four and five, though? <sighs> okay. Um, wow, Fujinami. Fujinami has to be there. Uh, Barry's, Barry's waiting for one name in particular. <laughs> it's not a New Japan guy either, Jeff. Exactly. <laughs> well, who are you thinking, Barry? Well, from it, well, Jeff knows I, I'm such a Jumbo Sharuda fan. I don't know if right. it makes the top five, but I mean, you know, on a personal level, I absolutely would. Uh, I don't know. It, it, to me, it's a tough one. It, I think Sharuda's there. I think Muda. Uh, Kijimudo, yeah. uh, is somebody based, you know, look, once, once all Japan was based, Baba was dead and, and, you know, things had to go in a different direction. What about a name? And I know that Jeff will like this, Ricky Choshu. Where do you feel he belongs? And maybe a top well, 10, if not a top five. I, I would say, because you can't say, you can't say Inoki and Fujinami without saying Choshu as well. Yep. Because that, you know, that their story of both the sons Chasing at the coattails of, you know, their wrestling father uh, can never be denied or taken away. I, I generally look at the impact that the athletes had on their given sport at the time. And, you know, I mean, it was a craze with Fujinami. Um, you have to put Liger there yeah. because of of what 
of Liger's crossover appeal and everything that he did. Uh, Tiger Mask, I would say, to a certain extent, but not to the level of Liger. Um, you know, and then you can, then you've got to talk about Tanahashi and Okada. And you've got to have them, Tanahashi definitely, uh, for what he was able to do because he started at, you know, less than negative and, you know, helped rebuild the business and the industry and saved it. Whereas everything else was dying and dead. And so I think they have to be in that conversation like you would put Fujinami and Choshu. Uh, but any, any of the pillar, you know, any of the pillars of, of all Japan too, you know, with Masawa, Kabashi, you've got to have them in, in that conversation so that you can easily fill out a top 10 and have some debate about where people might fit. But I think we could pretty much settle on 10, uh, and, and without too much disagreement. So, Kevin, as we uh, wrap up, my last question uh, for you, when you look at Japanese wrestling, and I'm going to talk just specifically about Baba's promotion, All Japan, and Inoki's promotion of New Japan, suffice to say, I think that All Japan had more peaks, but they also had more valleys. Baba's promotion was very steady, like a, a baseline. Eh, you'd have a slight increase, maybe a slight decrease, but it was a pretty steady promotion there for, good Lord, uh, 25 plus years. And Noki's, yeah. uh, while you had the incredible, you know, you did the dome shows, uh, had incredible sellouts. But then, as you said, he had where, you know, you talked about Tanahashi starting from less than zero. So based on that, Kevin Kelly, which promoter do you think was more successful, the slow and steady of Baba or the peaks and valley of Anoki? I would have to look at their at the bank accounts because really that's all you can judge it by. Sure, that's true. Um, it 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 also fit to the different styles of wrestling, and it fit to the styles of the the personality of the promoter. Inoki was much more bombastic and outreaching and would do things that would shock and surprise people and get conversation going. He's the one that threw the gauntlet down saying King of Sport. He was the first one to want to break away from Ricky Dozon and, and, and that group and the JWA and to start his own thing. It, uh, Baba was, was very, Baba was content. And, and was probably a better, steadier hand, steady businessman. And you could make the comparison the, between perhaps Vince Sr. And, and, you know, his son. Because Vince Sr. ran a very steady business in the big markets. And, yeah, there were some ups and downs in television going away in New York, et cetera. But we knew we were going to sell out the garden. We knew we were going to sell out Philly, Boston Garden, blah, blah, blah. All those little spot show towns. Business was steady. Guaranteed money. Um, everything was done the same way. Guys would come in, get a shot at the belt, then work their way down the card, and then be on to the next territory. Whereas Anoki was going to take business in a different direction, was going to try different things and new, you know, whatever. Um, 
much more risky, much more on the bleeding edge of pop culture and sports and entertainment with the greater risk involved. So, it, you know, it, it's your flavor of ice cream in that regard. Obviously, I think Baba had an advantage built in during that time with the NWA and could get whoever he wanted. And Inoki had to really mix and match and pull some rabbits out of hats and make guys, you know, Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson and those guys were risky. Uh, you were never quite sure if they were going to do business with you. And but but Inoki always had a good relationship with those rebels, uh, the Mavericks, the ones who didn't play well with the, you know, with the NWA, which was by far and away the, the largest group um, of the time. And so, so Baba had the pat hand and it would have been, I'm trying to think of like an American, you know, he's probably, Baba's probably the comparison to like a Jim Crockett, Jim Crockett senior, you know, and the steadiness of that promotion through the years and the steadiness when, when Jim Crockett jr. Took over and, and Inoki more like dusty and that dusty was going to make, you know, motion pictures and, you know, feature films and television and sitcoms, baby, and was going to be Starcade and was going to be all over the world on pay-per-view. That's, that's balls. And there's risk and reward in balls. Uh, and sometimes you never want to get out too far out ahead of your skis. Um, but boy, it's a hell of a ride if you, you know, is going along the way. So, hey, well, listen, Kevin, we certainly appreciate you joining us, my man. And as we are wont to do here on Breaking K-Fabe with Bowdrin and Barry, Kevin, will you join us as we raise a glass of an adult beverage to the memory of the late, great Antonio Inoki? Absolutely. We'll have a big toast and uh, look forward to seeing you guys. We all got to get together at some point soon. And uh, so we can we can have our raised glasses of whatever adult beverage in honor of, of so many that we've lost, but uh, Antonio Inoki probably at or near the top of the list. Barry, it is that time of the year again when we've seen all the recent posts. Uh, I, I know our friends uh, Dan Farron and Mary Lou were at CAC, and uh, uh, I'm just checking here. There's somebody else that we knew, Barry, that was what? also at CAC. Yes, it is Scam Likely himself. The sweet man made the trek. I believe, Barry, did Mrs. Kippelman go? Alas, no. Okay. Well, Sweet Lou is with us to talk a little CAC. And from what I understand, Barry, because I know you love this, Lou is going to be giving a little food reviews. What? Particularly on the delicious uh, Morton's Ruth's Chris-esque steaks. Mm. that were provided at the CAC dinners. Sweet man, first of all, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's uh, <clears throat> it's good to be back. Yes, I'm uh, still and, recovering. Well, you know, as I told Barry earlier, uh, Vegas, of course, it always takes a day or two to recover from because, of course, Barry, what happens in Vegas? In most cases, stays in Vegas. However, Jeff... I think we're going to break that unwritten rule right now because Lou is about to spill some beans here, isn't he? Well, the amazing thing is Howard Baum was not there, so there will be oh. no Howard uh, Baum debauchery stories, at least this episode, perhaps in a future episode. I don't know. Lewis, first of all, overall rating on the old school scale, 
A, B, C, D, or F, how did CAC fare this particular time? Okay, well, uh, as far as star power, the the legends who were there, I think CAC is back in full swing. I would give it like an A. Oh. And if you and if you were a, a fan of Memphis, uh, you were in hog heaven. So, so now I noticed that uh, at least on uh, the pictures, you had uh, Conan, you had Rey Mysterio, you had the King Jerry Lawler. To Lou Kippelman, what was the one guy that was there or lady that was there? That kind of had Luke marking out a bit. Oh man, uh, Lawler for sure. Also, Jeff Jarrett made an appearance on the the first banquet night, what was traditionally known as the Baloney Blowout. He was there because they uh, posthumously uh, gave some honors to his grandmother, Christine Teeny Jarrett, and then later on Jerry Jarrett appeared as well. Were Jerry so, and Jeff there at the same time? That's a good question. Jeff was not a the, following the baloney blowout. The next day, there was a sort of panel uh, seminar discussion of uh, Teeny Jarrett and the Memphis promotion, which uh, had Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler and Jimmy Hart and Brennan Martin, who is uh, Christine Jarrett's grandson, who uh, authored a, a book on Teeny. So I don't know if Jeff had a. Uh, blown out of town by then or not. Hey, Lou, let me ask you a question, too, and because I, I'm assuming that Jeff was uh, kind of inferring that there has been uh, heat between Jerry and, and Jeff Jarrett, uh, so you, did you, you never got the chance to ever see them together. Well, that's correct. Gotcha. Uh, it was kind of a, a funny thing. The, the, uh, that first night at the dinner, Lawler got up to speak, and he was honored. He had found out from Jeff that Jerry Jarrett had made it to Las Vegas, but he thought that the, you know, the night for Memphis and stuff was the following night. So he just went up to his hotel room and went to sleep. So I assume there was some sort of communications between uh, Jerry and Jeff. Gotcha. And my next question, did you see any interaction between Brennan Martin and the Jarrett's? I, I've heard, even though they're all related, that uh, they don't always get along fabulously. Right. Well, uh, Brennan was the he was sort of the moderator for the uh, Memphis panel and and his uncle Jerry was right there. So. Gotcha. Uh, whether they uh, fraternized outside of that, I could not tell you. So uh, you said the star power is good. What about the merch? Because when I went, uh, you know, some years back, one of the real highlights to me was the merch tables, all the stuff that was available, not necessarily just books, uh, you know, photos, all kind of different opportunities to uh, seek out wrestling related merchandise. Uh, how did that go, Lou? It was, I, I say it was pretty good this year in the nostalgia room. You had, yeah, you had guys, you had, you know, of course, people selling books. And that included uh, our own, the Wrestling News' Brian Solomon, who I think went over pretty well with his excellent book called Blood and Fire, a uh, fairly exhaustive biography of Ed Farhat, the original Sheik. And did you pick up a copy, Lewis? You know, I previously had a copy. Okay. So, so I, so I, so I let recently. So, okay. Please. Yeah. Yeah. 
And an interesting part of that was that eventually, he wasn't there the first day, but the second day in the nostalgia room, Sabu showed up and had a uh, vendor table. And he came in and Brian turned to me and said, oh, okay. Because, uh, you know, Sabu really did not participate you know, while Brian was writing the, uh, the Sheik book. But, and then eventually I think it was Kevin Sullivan who brokered a meeting in the nostalgia room between the two parties and, uh, everything seemed cool from there. But, uh, uh you know, I have to say, uh, in respects to the book, absolutely 100% not a hatchet job in any way uh, right. on, on the Sheik. I, I mean, I, I found it to be very respectful. Uh, you know, did the guy like pretty much, uh, you know, every other wrestler have his own particular warts uh, that people knew about? Of course, you know, he did. And yeah. Brian reported that. And, you know, he said that this guy, but an amazing career, amazing life. I mean, you know, as I had begun to read the book and I, I didn't mean to, to glom over uh, what you were talking about. Lou, oh, no, no one worries. Of the, one of the most fascinating things to me. I had never heard that the Sheik was a, a veteran, that he'd served in World War II. Right. Uh, that's just absolutely incredible. And Brian goes into details about some of the stuff that he did in the service. And it's just an amazing story. And right out of the service, how he became, in fact, the Sheik. Anyway, I'm sorry, Luke. Please continue. Oh, yeah. And for people who haven't picked up the book yet, I one of the reasons I highly recommend it is because with Brian's research, he was able to kind of fill in the gaps on, you know, the pre-wrestling life of Farhat. And it's a very, very illuminating story of a family that came from uh, Lebanon early on and really achieved the American dream in East Lansing, Michigan. And, you know, before where Farhat uh, became the Sheik of Araby and, and achieved notoriety. Also, the nostalgia room, you had, yeah, you had usual uh, collection of legends who were, you know, selling photos. Uh, Sabu's vendor table was interesting because Sabu has a children's book, a children's coloring book. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's called... Uh, uh, Sabu, Sabu, yeah, before you tell us what the, the title of the book, Jeff, how, give us, give ourselves 30 seconds. What, what's the title of the book? Uh, let me see. Uh, <laughs> I've got some, some doozies brewing over here. Okay. Go ahead. Lay it on me. How I, how I smear shit and urine all over my hotel rooms. Did you ever <laughs> read that book? Uh, yeah, I did not. I, I, it's I missed a that. Book. All right. The, the Johnny Valentine chapter included. Yeah, that? Exactly. Lou, uh, give it to us. Yes. Okay. It is. Yeah. Sabu and the three little pigs. <laughs> and so, too. yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, Sabu gets kind of anthropomorphized into an animal in this book. He, and of course he is a camel. Barry, kind of I don't go, think we've ever used the word anthro. What was that word again, Lou? <laughs> Anthropomorphized. I don't know if I'm even using it correctly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so Sabu's a camel. RVD makes an appearance as a very high dolphin. 
I was um, going to say he'd be a plant, but, uh, you know, that's a, right, Brian. So it was, uh, one of my friends, uh, Jared Rudy had picked up a copy of the book, uh, because he just needed it for his collection. So I flipped through it. Yeah. That's just uh, one of those, one of those pieces of merch you could never envision, uh, being created, but uh, you had other guys too. You had Jerry Lawler. J.J. Dillon, Kevin Sullivan, Sam Houston, uh, Sim Bodie, the former Kazarni, who I, I didn't get to ask him, but he had a bunch of different, like, custom wrestling figures at his table. So I'm guessing he had a, a hand in making them and selling them. And there were other tables which were, eh, they were there. That's about all I can say. So, Lou, now let us get to uh, the hot topic basically online. Lou, give us the food report from CAC. Yeah. Uh, capsule review uh, for the TLDR is, yeah, that that dinner at the banquet was the drizzling olies. Um, you had opening quarters was all right. Caesar salad. Hard to mess that one up. Delicious, sure. Yep. I and, I I would have missed it, I'm sure, but uh, you uh, know, I, Caesar I, salad, I, Jeff. It's delicious. No, I I've I've actually had uh, breaking development. Very, I've had Caesar salad. Oh, so you know, yeah, it uh, it's been a while, but I have had it. And uh, right. as salads go, eh, you could certainly do much worse. Please, right. Lewis, continue. <laughs> yes, uh, the main course was uh, the Plaza Hotels version of surf and turf the surf being uh, fair to middling a couple of skewers of of shrimp uh <laughs> with with some really very how perfect <laughs> sorry <laughs> that was the plaza hotel on the phone listen <laughs> there there they were they yeah they're 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 reminding yes. us that the dinner was actually catered by Outback. Uh, right. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, Out, Outback would have been about uh, three steps better than that. So yeah, the shrimp with a, a minimal amount of seasoning and maybe some margarine on them. Uh, but then the the turf part was uh, a very literally regrettable. Turf. Literally turf. Li- literally. Literally turf in that it was brown and tasteless. A bit of like strip steak that was, uh, cooked. More strip than steak. Oh, God. Well, at least with a strip, uh, I don't know. You get a drink and a, and a thrill. This particular steak, it was, uh, yeah, brown, tasteless, rubbery, overcooked. And it, it really, no, at my table, which was with uh, the Farrens, uh, Kurt Brown, a.k.a. Vendel Drummond, uh, Jarrett Rudy and Jason Rudy, both Arcadian Vanguard listeners and occasional guests, uh, Sheldon Goldberg, the famous uh, Northeastern promoter. Uh, it was, yeah, I don't think anybody was digging the dinner, and we were just, kind of in, in hushed tone saying to each other, oh, this is the shit. It wasn't until uh, our our friend, legendary writer, promoter, uh, manager, Carmine Despirito, posted a photo of said dinner on Facebook and said, oh, this was absolutely awful, which 
has produced a lot of discussion. So, Barry, of course, at this point, I feel the need to ask, who is to blame for the disappointment that was the meal? Is it the manager, Barry? Oh, is it the manager of the hotel? Uh, of the, uh, the, uh, the dining area. Uh, you know, is that a so, fair comment? In understanding and having worked in catering and hotels and et cetera, someone from the CAC would have set the menu. So they would have, you know, they offer different pricing tiers. If we do pasta, it's this much. If we do a chicken or steak, it's this much. Proteins, chicken and steak is always going to be more than pasta or rice or something like that. So ultimately, the organization would have made the choice on the steak. Now, to that end, odds are they didn't try the steak. They were told, and I looked at the steak, it's grayish in color, uh, it, it looks like it has a nice layer of fat. Uh, it's a very thin steak also. It doesn't appear to be a big steak. It looks to be as cheap a cut of meat as you could possibly get. I'm assuming the CAC okayed it without tasting it. However, the hotel has to bear responsibility on serving such a shitty product, right? You know, and again, I always find this to be the most head scratching thing, Jeff, because you've got blue. How many people were there at, at the dinner eating the uh, the piece of shit steak? Yeah, it was it was in the hundreds. It was a, a packed house, much, uh, you know, much better attended than last year. Gotcha. So you have hundreds of people. Why don't we say somewhere between four and five hundred people are eating this steak saying to themselves, with the exception of one or two people, like Flaherty would have gone best steak I ever had, right, Jeff? <laughs> but but there's got to be people that are eating this steak that are going, this might be the worst meal I've ever had. Let's stay far away from any food and beverage outlet provided from the Plaza Hotel. So I always find it interesting when a hotel serves a really horrific product because all it's doing is hurting them in the future. Do they think they're saving a few bucks? I don't know. I think they're actually doing more damage. Yeah. So, Lou, I guess uh, the uh, the question as we begin to wrap this segment up is, are you first of all planning on going next year? And will you be hoping that they either change the menu? Or <laughs> will you be availing yourself of somewhere else on the strip perhaps for dinner? <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's see. Well, uh, first of all, slight correction. The plaza is downtown right at the end of the Fremont Street experience. Uh, so, you know, had it been on the strip, uh, which in, I don't believe it's been in many, many years, for sure you could get better food. Yeah, and that's financial, steps. right? Jeff, I mean, that that's financial that it's not on the strip. The strip is going to be a lot more money than it is being downtown. And to lose point... Uh, with that as well, the food down, cause I've stayed in both. The food downtown is remarkably not at the level of what the food on the strip is, right, Lou? Yeah, that's for sure. Although there was kind of kitty corner to the plaza is a, a new property called Circa. And, uh, it's, it's really nice. And their restaurants seem to be good. I got, I ate at the deli there. And I got to say, it's pretty good. Otherwise, in the plaza itself, also, you know, keeping in mind that they're in the midst of renovations to to kind of give a facelift to the property. The the only dining options you have there is like a food court with a Subway, a McDonald's, a Mexican 
restaurant stand. And then what I had heard had just closed, uh, as part of renovations, their, their steakhouse, which was called Oscars, which is associated with the former mayor, Oscar Goodman, a, uh, a famous mob lawyer from years past. Alleged. 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 Oh, they don't even allege anymore. They just, <laughs> they just said, yeah, I'm mob lawyer to cover Oscar the Goodman. Arcadian Network. That's all, Lou. Oh, I know. I know. I don't think we need to CRAs, uh, there. Uh, so yeah, Lou, the, it's the all important question. What, and this really will help me understand because I, I've seen all the photos. It's been on my radar to get out there for years. And one reason or another, I don't go. Was there a contingent that went to In-N-Out Burger at any time? That's a good question. I myself did not have, uh, I didn't run a car and I only took rideshare to and from the airport. So I don't know if anybody put together a caravan to go out there. Mainly the friends of mine there, we just sort of stayed downtown and, you know, it's the, the Fremont street, street experience itself is, I don't know. I, I think it's a mix of something like Venice Beach or Hollywood and Vine with those, you know, particular buskers and hucksters on the street with like a NASCAR crowd. So you, you didn't have. <laughs> hey, wait, hold on a sec. I got to nice sit down mix. for that. I know. I, I got to yeah. sit down for that one. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it was. <laughs> and having, having, you know, visited downtown Vegas for almost 30 years now, I liked it just when it was a, a regular old humble down, down at the heel sort of uh, area where every hotel, you know, had a coffee shop where you could at least get ham and eggs for six or eight bucks. Right. Now it's, uh, eh, it's different. It's, what, is, uh, what is the hot show in Vegas right now? I'm not exactly sure because it's even that with the shows, it has changed from, although Wayne Newton is still there at the Flamingo on the strip. Rod Stewart has a show out there now, right? I, I know he has in the past. I don't know if he currently does, but it's like, yeah, it's all residency. So I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure who's been in town playing in the past has been like Adele and Celine Dion and Aerosmith and other folks like that. I, I can't say I, I picked up on the vibe of is, is there a must see show in town? All right, so but overall, Lou, you gave the experience, uh, aside from the food, a big thumbs up. Would that be fair to say? Well, when it comes down to it, CAC is all about the people. And they're definitely, by and large, a hospitable group. And, you know, the old-time workers, they're, you know, friendly and they're approachable. I mean, where else are you going to be? Waiting in line to check in and you uh, run across like Rick Morton and uh, Tommy Rich. I know where. And that's CWF Legends Fan Fest. And when does that ding, 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 ding. Yes. And I, I appreciate Lou lobbing me a softball. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you, sir. C- CWF Legends Fan Fest 9 taking place November the 5th in the beautiful Tampa suburb of Lutz. To that end. I think every time I've checked in, there's always been somebody in line. Usually it was like J.J. Dillon. Uh, the last one it was uh, Bill Eady. I remember we were all getting in the car 
And there was Bill Eady. But uh, that's part of the beauty of what we do, which I understand the CAC does as well, is that, look, we're in, we're in a building. The wrestlers will be staying in the same building. The fans are in the same building. So that interaction is priceless. And to me, one of my favorite things about the Fan Fest, which I think would be similar to the CAC, are the interactions that take place before any of the events even start. As Jeff will tell you, the legendary Pat Pat Patterson story took place the night before. And to me, uh, that's one of the highlights of the Fan Fest, regardless of when it actually happened. So I understand that. But, Lou, thanks again for the softball. Oh, uh, of course. And you could probably take a bite out of that softball. It would be much better than the steak we had. Oh. <laughs> so, and as a matter of fact, Barry, as we yes. wrap up this segment, uh, I have seen that since we're recording this a little bit earlier, uh, you can tell the good folks who haven't seen the announcement, don't you have a new guest that will be appearing that you're getting set to announce online, but we can throw it out to the listeners. We can because this will be announced, uh, I guess a day or two before this drops, but Steve Kern, who has been at, uh, three prior events will be making his fourth appearance. He'll be joining author Ian Douglas at Ian's table. Ian has just written a new book, uh, called Bahamian Rhapsody, which is about the history uh, wrestling in the Bahamas. And Steve Kern actually wrote the foreword and he reached out and said, Hey, I would love to be a part of this, uh, to support Ian. So I, I just love the idea, excited. But Jeff, before we started recording, I was told that another special guest will what? be joining us. What? I was told by First you, Jeff. All, before you tell us the other special guest, I will say, uh, that before we began recording, Barry told me that he was very happy that Steve met Dave Penzer's normal fee uh, for for the appearance. Would that be fair to say, Barry? Uh, he he Steve, not his normal fee, the fee that no, gets Dave's the most excited. It's oh, Dave's what Dave attempts to be annoyed. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> With that, Jeff, you're the one that told me about the next special guest that would be attending because I was under the impression that uh, this guest was going to not be able to make it. And as of this morning, that has flipped around. Jeff, do you want to break the news? Do you want to drum roll? Because I can do that. Uh, well, I can tell you that uh, there will not be, in fact, a new queen of the castle uh, oh. at, at the uh, at the fan fest as the uh, legendary, legendary Mrs. Baldrin. Yes, the sainted Mrs. Baldrin will. There I go, Lou, banging the table. I'm sorry. Will be appearing. Uh, a uh, last minute decision has been made. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, when she initially was not going to be a, a lot of it had to do with uh, with Gunny's health. And uh, because uh, that is not an issue, of course, uh, anymore. Uh, Kim has decided that uh, she will be uh, she'll be joining me to come down there. Uh, and uh, so we are looking forward to seeing. But, but you know, what, one of the things that uh, I, I mentioned to, to people and, and Barry have told people is. You know, we have people that bring their spouses there that have literally nothing to do with wrestling. Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're just going. And inevitably, the spouse ends up enjoying themselves just as much because, you know, we have good people that are down there. And the thing that I, I cannot stress enough, wildly different views and types of people, I think fair to say, Barry, uh, you know, we, we get to all kinds, all types. But the one thing they do have in common no matter your religious political affiliation, they're all good people. Uh, well, maybe with the exception of Nellie. But other than that, 
they're all good people, and we always have lots of fun uh, seeing all those people. Barry, so yeah, yeah, Mrs. Bowdrin will be there. It's like everybody checks uh, the bullshit at the front door, it, whatever else is taking place, and people show up just to have a good time. There are no brawls. There are no fights. There's no uh, loud arguments, and I'm thrilled that Mrs. Bowdrin is there. Uh, two questions. One, will we be ordering Capriati's for lunch? Because I got to tell you, I, I look forward to the lunches. Whenever Mrs. Bowdrin is involved, I know that I'm eating okay on Saturday, which I'm happy about because normally I just starve. So she always takes care of me. Second, is there a chance that the beautiful Molly, and if for those that don't know, Molly is Jeff and Kim's other dog. Is there a chance the beautiful Molly will be making it to Luke's? I have not, in fact, asked uh, Mrs. Bowdrin as we speak. Should be home uh, in about two hours. Uh, I will broach the subject. Perhaps we can uh, make a love match between Ozzy and Molly. I'm hopeful. This, and that was really Ozzy uh, sitting hopeful. right next to me. I bet you me. Ozzy's hopeful. <laughs> Ozzy over here with a raging heart on right now. See, the first time in the fine history of this podcast that we've discussed matching dogs uh, <laughs> for the purpose of a good yes. time. So yes. on that note, Barry, why don't we say we go smooth segue right from the oh, yeah, smooth. movie review. Barry, I have had these two movie reviews in my pocket for almost two months now because, well, certainly Barry has all these things that he has to attend to. But I asked Barry quite a while ago if he could get a chance to watch a film that I saw that I had tons of fun watching. And uh, quite frankly, part of the problem was the movie was not accessible anywhere. I saw it on HBO, uh, HBO, and I assumed it would be streaming on HBO Max, but it was not. And then the movie moved to Netflix. So Barry has had a chance to watch. And by the way, I forwarded you uh, one of the reviews, Barry. Yep, got it. The movie Bad Words with Jason Bateman. So quick plot summary, Jason Bateman plays a uh, a guy in his, uh, let's just say, mid-30s, uh, who decides that he is going to enter a spelling bee, uh, the type of spelling bee that you see that usually features kids that are 12 or 13 years old. He finds a loophole in the, uh, the bylaws of the National Spelling Bee and decides to enter himself in the competition. Uh, at the end of the movie, no spoilers, there is a reason that is... Uh, shown to you why he has done this whole thing uh, as a way of, uh, let's say, uh, getting back at somebody who had done him wrong. So, Barry, before we go to our two reviews, why don't you tell the folks, what did you think of Bad Words? Yeah, you you had been, I think you've been talking about this for six to eight weeks at this point and have been telling me about it. We found it on Netflix and uh, I was watching the Dahmer Netflix miniseries and off topic, as I always tend to go. Have you seen one episode of this yet, Jeff? I have to be honest with you. I have absolutely no interest <clears throat> in that. Which is a, a very fair assessment. I will tell you, it is, it's good. I, I was like you. I was going to stay away from it because I felt that I knew the story enough and I didn't have an interest to see torture and all that shit. But then I saw who the actor playing Dahmer is. It's Evan Peters. And he has had a relationship, a working relationship with Ryan Murphy. And I saw that this is another collaboration between the two. Ryan Murphy is the guy that does American horror stories. He did uh, Ratchet, which was uh, about Nurse Ratchet prior to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's done a bunch of other stuff, too. And there's a similarity 
to the way that he does stuff. It's kind of exploitive. Uh, it, he, he crosses a lot of barriers. I sometimes like his work. I have heard his, his works described as very self-absorbed, which I believe as well. But Evan Peters, as an actor, you, do you have any idea who he is? I have no idea. Yeah. And I think that's most of the country. And hopefully that changes with Dahmer. Evan Peters is a gift from God in the acting world. This guy is unbelievable. He is that good. He makes this. I highly recommend Dahmer, but the caveat to it, it is disturbing. And somebody told me, and I think I forget, I'm going to paraphrase, but they said, I can watch it, but I can't watch, I can't binge watch it like I do a lot of other shows because it is so disturbing. And they're right. And with that, I think I hit two episodes yesterday and I was like, all right, I need a break from, you know, acid in the brain and all that shit. And I, I saw bad words and I'm like, fuck, there it is. And Evan Peters mention. is not in bad words. He's not. Oh, no, as we circle back around. I got to tell you, I think it would have made it better had Evan Peters been in it. But with it, I still like the movie a lot. So, uh, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily a gigantic Jason Bateman fan. And I'm going to tell you why. And I, I've watched every episode of Ozark. And here's the irony. I usually love the projects that Jason Bateman is in, despite Jason Bateman and uh, Ozark, I thought was great, but I've always found Jason Bateman. What was the other one? Game night. Well, that was his other fairly large movie. Yeah. I, did, I, you, did you like him in horrible bosses? Uh, yeah, I get, I get, I didn't necessarily like him, but I liked the movie. But what I find about Jason Bateman is he's almost always the same in his movies. However, this movie was different. He kind of broke the mold. And I, as I start to watch it, the first couple of minutes, I'm like, oh, fuck, a Jason Bateman movie. Do I want it? You know, he doesn't he just makes faces a lot. And about three minutes into it, I was laughing out loud. And I, I started to after the third time, I said, when's the last time I laughed out loud at a movie more than three times? Well, it was eight times yesterday, Jeff. And certainly I was under the influence as well. But that's not that that was standing. This is a really funny movie. This is a highly offensive movie as well. This is not a, and I, I'm, it's perfect for the brothership. I don't, you know, this is nobody, but this is not a movie that, uh, you may want to sit with your parents or this grandparents and watch. This is not a family night movie. I can tell you that. Benji will not be sitting with Antonio for this movie. And I think what makes it so inappropriate is Jason Bateman's comments, uh, to the children. And he's having conversations with a lot of these kids. What he does with the little girl, uh, and I should say little girl. She's not a little girl. They, she's a preteen girl. And uh, he does something. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, that's terrible. But I get it. It goes with the movie. I don't want to spoil this. As Jeff said, there is a reason Jason Bateman is doing it. You find out. I think the crux of this movie comes down to two things. One is Jason Bateman's comedic timing with his one-liners. It's fantastic. He's got this almost Jerry Lawler type-esque uh, retort. Anytime anybody can say anything to him, he comes back at them very casually and calmly tenfold. And he, it's scathing. The other, which was really endearing, 
which is, in my opinion, makes this movie, is the relationship with the little Indian boy. I completely forget. Chihuahua or something like that, Jeff? What's his name? Uh, Let me see. I'm checking it. It is uh, Chitana. 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 That's the character's name. The actor's name is Rohan Shand. And I I will say, the movie came out in 2013. This kid is great, though. I I thought this kid is like, he's this kid is... And if you, if you, especially the first half of the movie, if you're watching this movie and you don't just love this kid and want every kid in the world to be like this kid, there's something wrong with you. This kid is, and I'm assuming he never became a major star. As you said, the movie's nine years old and I don't recall ever seeing him again. This kid is fantastic. And the relationship these two have, it's absolutely fantastic. The other beautiful thing about this movie, Jeff, which I should have picked up right off the top, this is like 90 minutes. This is a quick movie to watch. You will laugh. Highly, highly recommended. So the other thing I want to mention is uh, some of the character actors. The great, the great Philip Baker Hall. Yes. Uh, who is the guy that's in charge of the spelling bee. Uh, Allison Janney is in it. But one of my favorites is the female lead along with Jason Bateman, and that is Catherine Hahn, who is she's just absolutely fantastic in everything. She was a uh, she was the uh, the wife of uh, oh god the actor's name is Adam something uh, and Step Brothers, uh, and in this she become you know she's part of the story is that she is somebody who's following Jason Bateman's character as far as doing a story. She's a journalist that's doing a story on his attempt to win the spelling bee and they become romantically involved. And there is a scene that is absolutely hilarious where here, I will just say they're having sex in a, uh, like a laundry room or something like that. And uh, as uh, Jason Bateman is becoming more and more amorous, she keeps looking up at him going, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Uh, you know, and, and she doesn't want him to make eye contact in the middle of a sex act. And it's a very, very scene. I'm trying to think if there's to see if there's anybody else that we would recognize who was in it. Who was she in uh in was she the masturbator in Step Brothers? No, she was because I liked her uh, whoever yo, she was. I, I want to curl you up in a little ball and put me put you in my vagina. That was the, That's the, right. the, That's the right. famous line. But uh, yeah, no, Bad Words is a absolutely hilarious movie. So that being said, we have had some of the brotherships send in their reviews, Barry. Oh. So I believe uh, you have the first review. Why don't you uh, tell us who it's from and read uh, their review of bad words? Absolutely. My uh, this review that is in my sweaty palms is from Dennis Brown. Jeff, would you happen to know is this the prolific reggae artist Dennis Brown? Who is? Oh, uh, is he former uh, enhancement guy uh, from CWF? Uh, uh, you know the uh, world junior heavyweight champion, perennial junior heavyweight champion, Denny. No, I don't know. It really could be uh, that Denny Brown, actually. Yeah. Uh, anyways, did he like the movie though? Uh, I got to tell you, my favorite Denny Brown story again will be off topic. Were you there when? And I'm not making. So if you've never attended, I'll get another plug in. This is the cheapest of all plugs. If you've never attended CWF Legends Fan Fest number nine coming up November the fifth, by the way, it, there's a lot of shit that takes place. It just you know that is out of the scope of what the Fan Fest is. And during the Rock and Roll Express, uh, when we had them, which was number seven, there was a large contingent of people that were outside the hotel drinking, smoking, 
shoot wrestling with Robert Gibson, who professed to be a shoot wrestling expert. And Denny Brown was out there. Denny Brown, again, former NWA World's Heavyweight Junior Champion. And Denny Brown was as hammered as any human being I have ever seen. I believe it was two cases of beer and maybe, uh, and I won't mention what the other stuff was, but two cases of beer and a lot of other shit. And he was literally like, he just, he was just standing there like a statue because he couldn't do. Well, Neely, who you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, Neely comes up right behind him and pantses Denny Brown. Right. Were you there for that? I was not. I got to tell you, sorry, I one of you, I'm sure one of the funniest things I think I'd ever seen. And, you know, in, in a normal world, I think Denny Brown would have turned around and gone for Neely. But I think Denny just stood there <laughs> like wondering what the fuck happened. But uh, holy cow. But that is my favorite Denny Brown story, at least as of this moment. However, this review coming from Denny Brown or Dennis Brown, whoever it is, Bad Words is a movie that has been on my radar ever since it came out. Just never got around to watching it. It's a very dark comedy about a man finding a loophole to enter a national spelling bee. Jason Bateman was perfect as a complete jerk of a character. His deadpan delivery puts it over the top. I also love anything Katherine Hahn is in. I found the story in Bateman's character very funny. It was definitely dark at times to make Bateman seem despicable. As the motives of his actions become known and a budding friendship with his number one rival grows, he makes the face turn we all wanted. The only drawback I had with this uh, was the movie that was sometimes, oh, okay. The only drawback I had with was the movie was that sometimes of his worst actions were thrown in for pure shock value. I'm not sure that's grammatically correct. Uh, but overall, it was very funny and entertaining. Watch. I give it a thumbs up. He brings up a good point, Jeff, and I was going to ask you about this. Jason Bateman's character, at least in the first half, if not the first 75 percent of the movie, is really unlikable. Do you feel that hurts the movie at all or no? No, uh, you know, he used a very uh, good term uh, when he said this is a very dark comedy. Holy shit, is this a dark comedy? I mean, yeah. this is like the heart of this movie is black as night. I, I mean, it just doesn't get much darker than this. For As you said, uh, some of the like there's a practical joke he plays on one of the female contestants. That's just horrific, but it's hilarious uh, in hindsight. Also, the review I have is from. Uh, Speaking of the uh, Legends Fan Fest, our old friend Kevin Diggin, uh sitting in this review. Bad Words is a movie I've always wanted to see, kept forgetting about, but I'm very happy I was picked to watch it. Jason Bateman, who produced and directed the film, is on a fun ride, a 40-year-old entering spelling bees. His character comes off across as an asshole that you can't help enjoying in the film. His ways of attempting to win are not meant you expected, but very fun to watch. Again, uh Grammar here, apparently, or <laughs> uh, he takes up an interesting kinship with one of the competitors in the film. That's great to watch. The cast and crew are amazing to watch. And it's a well-told story. By the end of the film, it seems you can't help liking Bateman's character. This, the way the story comes to an end is surprising, but worth the watch to see. Definitely would recommend and watch again. Uh, thank you, Dennis. And thank you, Kevin, for your reviews. Sorry it took a while to get to it, uh, but let's be honest, it was Barry's fault. Now, 
That being said, well, you true. know, you said the way that Jason Bateman's character comes across, uh, kind of a quasi Jerry Lawler heel. I'm going to go you one better. This to me, his, uh, cutting remarks, uh, almost Bobby Heenan esque, which that's pretty high praise, I know. But, uh, this was, uh, just great ad, you know, I don't mean ad libs, but just like zingers that he throws at the kids at their parents, at the people running the spelling bee. It's just one-liners, one right after another bear. Yeah, and so that you bring up a good point, too. I always found Bobby Heenan more – I found Lawler more offensive in in his comment, but I liked it. I think I liked it better. But Bobby was more, I think, for prime time. Like, Bobby's were a little more sanitized, but they both had a quick wit, absolutely. Jason Bateman, though, I mean, he gets – there's that one scene, and I think they're in a, a diner or they're in a restaurant, and the mother comes over. The woman – it was funny because as I'm watching, she's got this beehive hairdo. And for those that have kids that are roughly my age uh, or the kids that are my, the ages of my kids, she was the mother in the series of films uh, – shit – the hell was the name of that uh oh that'll come to me but anyways there was a uh oh it's gonna kill me if i don't think of it there was a series of films uh give or take 5 10 15 years ago about a young kid growing up and uh she played the mother in that her her hair is is terrible but there is a great scene with jason bateman the little kid and she comes over and says you know you're and i forget exactly you're a real jerk to do what you're doing this is meant for kids and he his I don't know if he wrote this or, it, you know, but I got to admit, and Dennis said that in the review, his delivery is like fucking unbelievable. Jason Bateman's delivery. He just does uh, a and great job. Deadpan too, completely. And that's, that's, but no emotion in his voice. Like he's just great the way he does it. And the woman obviously gets flustered. Oh, he was talking about her vagina looking like an elephant trunk. And that's remember. <laughs> He had a whole bunch that, and, and she just goes away. Oh, just honestly, if you have Netflix and you have 90 minutes and. So, uh, so, so I'll, I'll just throw this out there. Uh, and I don't know. Yes. So I, I happen to go to uh, the IMDB, uh, uh, page that features this uh, movie and I'm looking at the quotes. So here's a quote from Jason Bateman to a, uh, to a mother who swore in the presence of the little Indian kid. Why don't you take your potty mouth, go locate your preteen cocksucking son, and yeah. stuff him right back up that old blown out sweat sock of a vagina and scoot off back to whatever shit kicking town you came from. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of fun stuff you get from this movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably one of the nicer things that he says to people. Uh, just a great, great one liners. Uh, I really love this movie a lot. And again, as was pointed out, by Dennis. This is a really dark film, but a, a really fun film. And if you give it a chance, it's on Netflix. I think you'll get a big kick out of it. Just for God's sakes, don't watch it with your family. All right, Barry, we managed to get through another episode of Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. And so what do you say? You about ready for the old go home, my friend? Yeah. 
this is a strong episode, Jeff. Uh, big thanks to Kevin Kelly, obviously, for coming on with very short notice and uh, discussing the legacy of Antonio Inoki. But uh, another fun episode. What what number was this again, Jeff? Two six one. Wow. So thirty nine away from the big three hundred. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see. All we right. don't want to rush anything. You That's never true. know what's going to happen. So That's true. Uh, anyway, on behalf of uh, our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, uh, whose work is always appreciated, and my co-host, Barry Rose, I am Jeff Baldron, the booker. I'm going to offer up for you, you know, sometimes when we do the uh, the closing, I'll tell Lou to take this ship into port, uh, take us home, Lou, whatever. Uh, I decided that what I'd like to do to honor my boy is to close out this show. And for the foreseeable future to close out, I will just say good night, Cunny. I'll see you in the morning. <laughs>